All right, if you are a guest, I want to say a special welcome to you. We are so glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, beginning in Luke chapter 18. We're going to bounce out a little bit. I'll explain that in a morning. But first, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, we celebrated a nine-year birthday this year as a church. And so when you think about, for those of you who were here in those early days, who we were and who we have become through the Lord's grace and where we are going, it is nothing short of an amazing thing. And so we're very, very grateful for those of you who joined in along the way, those of you who are maybe first time guests here today, we are excited to, to have you here with us. Maybe link arms as we go forward and keep pressing out the mission of God uh, here in Nolensville and around the world as well. We had a team get back from the DR recently, a team get back from Central Asia, um, and we have ministry partners all over the world. And so the Lord's doing some really amazing things. And one of my favorite days, um, it's a repetitive day at Providence, is when we have a parent-child dedication. And what happens in a parent-child dedication is parents come forward with their baby boy, baby girl, and they stand up here and, and, and they're, they're basically confessing, Lord, you gave this child to us, and now we symbolically are giving this child back to you and want you to work in this child and work through this child and work for this child and do great things in them and through them and for them. And church, bride of Christ, come around us and help us do these things. God bless this child of mine. Raise them to come to a place where they know you and love you and serve you with all of their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength. That they worship and enjoy you and lead others to do the same. And so we stand and we make that pledge and, 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 and we ask the Lord to bless this child. When we come to Luke chapter 18, verse 15, that's kind of what we see going on here is that Jesus is being approached by all of these parents that are bringing their infants to him and asking him to bless them. And so he's blessing them and the disciples, they start rebuking these parents for bringing the children to them. And so Jesus rebukes the rebukers and like, no, 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 let the children come to me. Let the children come to me. So let me just go ahead and read it and get this kind of in our mind as we keep you know, going forward uh, with this. Because he's going to ultimately hold children up as an example of the kind of people that come into the kingdom of God. So read along with me, uh, Luke chapter 18. Verse 15, it's on page 877 in the Bibles that are around you. If you want to grab one of those, and if you don't have a Bible with you, definitely grab those. I'm going to be calling out a lot of page numbers so you can flip and read along with me today. Page 877 is where we'll begin. Jesus just finished the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And he says, well, here's how it goes. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so the main point here, there's, there's two I want to I draw our attention to quickly. The first is that Jesus loves children. Jesus loves children. Children absolutely loves children. And think about how many times the miracles of Jesus involve children. In John 4, you've got him healing the official's son. 
And then uh, you've got Jairus' daughter who is dead, and Jesus walks into the room and says, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she comes back to life. Right at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration, you've got the demonized only son of a man, and Jesus heals him. And so both as a man and as God, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And we should too. We should, in just a practical, small, easy outflow of this, is there should never be a shortage of workers for worship care. Because if Jesus says, let the little children come to me, and we are his hands and feet, then we should be his hands and feet and be saying, let the little children come to me. So it's just a practical outworking of that. I want to encourage you to volunteer and jump in and help little children come to Jesus. And so that's one little thing we can pick up from this, these verses. But another one is that to enter the kingdom of God, we must become like a child, right? like children. And not in the sense of like less sinful, because we're all sinful, adults, children. Right? We have the same sinful nature inherited from Adam. And not in the sense that children are just better than adults. There's no idealization here of children. But in the sense that children have some amazing qualities that show us what it looks like to be someone who enters the kingdom of God. The wonder that they have over amazing things. I think of Lucy Pevensey when she first walked through the wardrobe into Narnia and the awe and the wonder that she had. That's what children are to have. Just this wonder, this awe, this joy in the midst of mystery. And then an intrinsic trust that children have in their parents. I remember with my three oldest daughters, I would throw them when they were infants so high in the air. And they never had a fear that I was going to drop them. They knew that daddy would catch them. They had that trust. And then another quality that's sometimes missed, and infants, the ones that are being brought to Jesus here, are the epitome of this. They are completely helpless and dependent. These are the qualities that mark someone who enters into the kingdom of God. Childlike awe and wonder and trust and helplessness and dependence. And so as Spurgeon put it, we must not think a child cannot come to God until he is like a man. But a man cannot come until he is like a child. We must grow down until we become like a child. And so that's the main point of this text in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. But what I felt led to do months ago as I was planning out the rest of this sermon series through the entire book of Luke was to take this opportunity to address a question that Luke 18 doesn't address. And so I'm going to do something I don't do a whole lot of times here, and I'm going to springboard off of this and talk about a topic. Because I want to answer a question that is one of the most common questions that uh, I'm asked. And that question has to is what happens to babies? Small children, those who've been miscarried, those who've been aborted, stillborn, or just very personally, those with severe cognitive and intellectual challenges who might not be able to comprehend the gospel and place personal, you know, exercise personal faith. What happens to these beautiful souls when they die? 
Because even as we talked about last week with the tax collector and the Pharisee, salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But these that are in question this morning do not appear to have the mental capacity to have exercised faith. And so what happens to them when they die? And so that's what we're going to tackle in the rest of our time together. And I want to do this because this is, this is real life. This isn't theoretical musings up here. This question has affected and, and affects every single person in this room. In some way, shape, or form, you were touched by someone who's had to deal with this question. Maybe it was you. Some, some of us in this room, you've, you've lost a child due to miscarriage. Some of you may have lost a child after birth. Some of you may have a background where you aborted a child. Some of you may have children, like I do, who have cognitive, intellectual challenges. And so this is very real, real life. I mean, I remember just a very scary time in our life when Sarah was at the hospital, Eden was at the hospital, and I was at home tucking in a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and they asked me, Daddy, what happens if she doesn't make it? You've got to answer that question. And so what happens? And so just with a pastor's heart, I want to walk with you through this deeply personal and emotional question and help you see why I'm convinced and believe with all my heart that babies and those with severe cognitive disabilities or challenges are all among the elect of God, chosen for salvation before the foundations of the earth. And so I don't want to just say that. I don't want to just state that. I want to show this to you. And this is a position I've held probably for 25 years, 30 years. I've been a Christian for about 30 years. And so I don't want to just say it, I want to show it to you, and I want to help you build a theology around this question that's based upon Scripture, not sentimentality. So we need to be able to answer why we believe what we believe and have the hope that's within us. And so we're going to do that, and to do that we're going to have to build out some things because admittedly the Bible does not speak plainly on this issue. So we need to be humble Right? It doesn't speak plainly on this issue. It also doesn't speak frequently on this issue. But where it does speak, though it's scant, it is significant. And so here's how we're going to try and build out our theology on this. First thing I want to do is I want to lay down a few. We've already noted some things that, that we know, but I want to lay out a few more things that we know as it relates to this question. And then I want to start piling up the evidence, just mounting the evidence and then I want to hit one final thing we know. So that's going to be the basic outline if you want to take notes. Some things we know, mounting evidence, one final thing we know. And so we'll do it. Some things we know. First of all, we know that all people are made in God's image. All right? That in each human person, God has placed the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. This is something that marks all humanity off as distinct from the rest of creation. As awesome as the rest of creation is, I've got a dog now, love that dog, but that dog does not have the Imago Dei. Only humans do. Something cognitive, intellectual, spiritual, 
moral that marks us off as separate from the rest of creation. And the outflow of this is that all people, therefore, regardless of anything, any label we want to put on them, is worthy of dignity and respect and value and kindness, regardless of the status they are in the womb or disabilities they may have or the age, elderly, whatever. All people, race, ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, all people are worthy of value and respect because they are made in the image of God. Number two thing that we know as we approach this is that all people are sinners from the moment of conception. All people are sinners from the moment of conception. And so flip over to Psalm 51 real quick. And so on page 474 in the Bibles that are around you, page 474, Psalm 51, Talking about all people are sinners from the moment of conception. Things that we know is we're building up to answer this question. This is something we know. And so 474, Psalm 51 says this. Verse 1. Have mercy on me. We, we actually read this last week as our Old Testament reading. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, this is what I want you to know. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David, who's writing this, is not saying that the sex act of his mother and father was sinful in conceiving him. That's not what he's saying. Sex within the bounds of marriage is a God-ordained, God-glorifying great thing. Anything outside of that, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, regardless, anything outside of biblical marriage, sex inside of that, anything else, that is sin. But inside is a good thing. But the point here is is not that he was conceived in sin, but that at the moment of conception, he was recognized as a sinner. Which, though the focus is not that this morning, is also proof that life begins at conception. But at the moment of conception, David... And all of us are considered sinners. And so just historic Christian theology, Christianity 101 holds that in the beginning, God created everything and it was great and it was awesome. and It was beautiful and wonderful and perfect. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God, brought sin into the world. It fractured God's universe. And all of us are recipients of this sin. We have a sinful nature now. We are broken. We are depraved. And so you and I walking around today, we're, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Does that make sense? Like we are inherently sinners, so we sin. It's not, we don't, you know, it's not that we're sinners because of our sin. No, it's we sin because we are sinners inherently. Nature, we are depraved. And we are worthy of judgment for this alone. We have this nature, but then it's compounded by our own sin that we carry out because we're inherently sinners. 
And so as we're thinking about these things this morning, we've got to keep this in mind. All people are sinners from the moment of conception. All right, that's the second thing we know. The third thing we know is that all people are known by God and created by God on purpose. So flip over a couple of pages uh, in uh, uh, the book of Psalms to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 will be to your right, a couple of pages. <clears throat> Excuse me. This will be familiar for some of you. It says this, in, starting in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Folks, this is you. All right? So stop being so self-condescending as you look at yourself. God made you fearfully. He made you wonderfully. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And note this, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God has made all of us in His image. All people are sinners from the moment of conception. And all people have been made by God and created by God on purpose. No accidents. And then the fourth thing we know and that I want us to keep in mind this morning is that God is sovereign in salvation. He is sovereign in salvation. We could talk about this for a while and we could debate the ins and the outs of this, but it is God's electing and predestinating purposes that give me great hope as I think about the salvation of these dear ones that we're talking about this morning. And so as we now turn to kind of piling up some evidence from Scripture, we've got to keep these things in mind. All people are made in God's image. All people are sinners from the moment of conception. All people are created by God and for God with a purpose. And God is sovereign in salvation. These are things that we know. These are things that Scripture is clear on. And so let's look now at some of the evidence. And I'm going to show you a lot. I'm going to show you probably seven or eight things, none of which are like absolutely, utterly convincing on their own. But when you start to pile them up together, they become pretty convincing. And so, mounting evidence. Let's start piling it up. All right. First of all, it's apparent in Scripture that at least some babies have been saved, have been regenerated, have a saving relationship with the Lord from birth, like in the womb. At least three examples of this. David, Jeremiah, and John the Baptist. And so of David, the scriptures read Psalm 22. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Of Jeremiah, the scriptures read before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then of John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, what I just read was Jeremiah 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 15. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy was filled with the Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. 
And in Luke's theology, being filled with the Spirit means that you are one who has, uh, you know, it's an aspect of the Spirit's work of regeneration. You, you are one who has been saved. You're one who's been regenerated. And so bare minimum, these verses give us reason to at least wonder whether the same could be true of others who die in infancy. They didn't die, but if they could be saved, is it possible that God does save all the infants who are going to die, who are going to pass away? Not convincing, but it's a question that we have to ask. Second, flip over to Romans chapter 1. It's on page 939. Romans chapter 1, 939. <clears throat> Start reading in verse 18. Here's what it says. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And so what Paul was dealing here, uh, what he's dealing with here is people who have not heard the gospel because they do not have access to it, but who can clearly see that there is a God through what's called general revelation. Just that you can look around and you can look into the solar system. You can drill down in the you know, 21st century to the molecular level and see how God's wired our bodies and how they all work together. And you can tell there has to be an intelligent design to this. There has to be a God who's created all things. And so Paul, as Paul states, this general revelation, though it's not enough to save them, it is enough to leave them without excuse. There is a God. But if a person cannot recognize this general revelation that makes them without excuse, whether that's by age or by mental capacity, does that therefore imply that they would have an excuse? Because they can't recognize general revelation. They can't see it. They can't understand it. They can't contemplate it. Does it imply that? The folks at Desiring God Ministries I think are helpful. They say, they write this, the point for us is that even though we human beings are under the penalty of everlasting judgment and death because of the fall of our race into sin and the sinful nature that we all have right from the moment of conception, Nevertheless, God only executes this judgment on those who have the natural capacity to see His glory and understand His will and refuse to embrace it as their treasure. Infants, I believe, do not yet have that capacity. And therefore, in God's inscrutable way, He brings them under the forgiving blood of His Son. Because in all of this, we need to make sure that we understand God is not saving infants because they're innocent. They're not innocent, they're guilty. We, we are all guilty. We have sin. He's saving them because although they are sinful in his mercy, he desires that compassion be exercised upon those who are sinful and yet lack the capacity to grasp the truth revealed about him in nature and in the human heart. 
And so, quoting Spurgeon again, it's not that God chooses someone to salvation because they're going to die in infancy. Rather, he has ordained that only those who have been chosen for salvation will be allowed to die in infancy. God's justice and condemnation will be most clearly seen by allowing those who will not be saved to demonstrate their inherent sinfulness through willful, knowing transgression in life. So I know this is a bit heady, but it's important. Let's keep going. More evidence. All right. Third kind of piece of evidence. Think back to, especially if you've got a background in the church and went to Sunday school or anything like that. Think back to the nation of Israel and the Exodus. Right. And because of their sin and because of their disobedience and their lack of faith, when they come to the promised land. God makes them wander for 40 years before he allows them to go into the promised land as uh, discipline for their lack of faith. Right. Makes them wander for 40 years. When you go back and you look at that, you'll note that it is only the adults that are punished. After 40 years, all the kids have grown up. All the adults are dead. And now, he, plus, except for Joshua and Caleb, who are faithful spies, it's the kids who get to go into the promised land. They're not held to the sins that, are, that, their, that their parents were. And so they go into the promised land. The kids do. The kids weren't punished. The parents were. The kids weren't held against them. And then also, Old Testament, you'll recall the story perhaps of David's son born out of adultery with Bathsheba. So here's the story. David, the king, is not out on the field with his troops like he should have been. And he's out in a place. And Bathsheba's probably not being you know, very uh, private anyhow. And he sees her taking a bath and says, hey, I want that lady. And so his servants go get her. Come. They have an affair. She gets pregnant. David's like, oh my, this is not good. She's got a husband who's out fighting for me. Let me tell you. And he manipulates situations so that he's basically murdered and taken out and doesn't know. The baby that was conceived right there dies. And let me just read it to you. Second Samuel chapter two. I don't know that I wrote the page down for this one. You can just listen to it. I mean, it's on page 372 in my Bible, if that's helpful. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife, that's the guy, bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? Because in that day, you, you like sackcloth and ashes, mourning, all of this. What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. 
And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And so what... What, is it, what does it mean here when David says, I shall go to him? Some people say that he's just saying, uh, I'm going to die someday. Now, if that's the case, David has just become the ultimate Captain Obvious. We know that you're going to die someday. That's nothing new. That's, that's not news. So why would he say, I shall go to him? And, and then why would he change his whole pattern of life? And he's not going through mourning, right? He's returned to his regular daily activities, why would he do that? It's because he has great hope that he's going to see his son again. That he will see him again in heaven. That they will be reunited in heaven. And he's comforted and he's encouraged by this. And so he goes back to life as normal. I'm going to see him again. And so again, we have to ask questions here. If that is the case here, that David's going to see his son again, could that not be true of all infants and small children who die? And I think all of this mounting evidence where we're starting to see all this is leading us to say, yeah, yeah. The fifth thing that I want you to think about, and this one's kind of deep, the testimony of Scripture from cover to cover is that people are judged not condemned, but judged on the basis of sins that they have like personally and willfully done, all right, committed. Condemned just on sinful nature, but they're judged on the basis of what they do. You won't find one that talks about judgment that's disconnected from actions. And so eternal judgment, I mean, it's always linked to the rejection of divine revelation, whether that's in creation, general, or your conscience, or Christ, all right? Divine revelation and willful disobedience, eternal judgments always link to these things. But are infants capable of these things? Willful rejection of divine revelation. And since they're not, it seems that they would therefore be saved because they don't meet the conditions of what judgment, divine judgment, is for. R.A. Webb explains it way better than I could, so I'm going to read him. If a deceased infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, that sin nature that we have and that we are condemned for, there would be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, it would know suffering, but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It could not tell its neighbor, it could not tell itself why it was so awfully smitten. And consequently, the whole meaning and significance of its suffering, being to it a conscious enigma, the very essence of penalty would be absent. Because he doesn't know what he's being penalized for. That's what punishment is. You did this, you're getting this. And justice would be disappointed of its vindication. Such an infant could feel that it was in hell, 
but it could not explain to its own conscience why it was there. These are deep waters, folks. I get that. Deep waters. But for me, the strongest argument of all this mounting evidence for the salvation of infants and those who have severe cognitive intellectual challenges comes from the worship that's going to happen around the throne in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever. And so, go to page 1031. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. So I told you we're going Genesis to Revelation. We hit Genesis 1, Imago Day. Revelation now. Page 1031, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says this. And they sang a new song saying, worthy, talking to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Turn over one page, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, a um, complimentary passage says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so notice what's going to mark this eternal throne room. Right? It is the worship of God from people of every nation, all right? All tribes, all peoples, all languages, all tongues. And so not one nation, not one tribe, not one people group, not one subset of a group that's got a different dialect or language, not one will be left out. Not one. But there are obviously people groups who were once in existence and who have ceased to exist, who never heard the gospel. Yet the Bible says that there will be people around the throne from every tribe and tongue and nation. How is this possible if they never heard the gospel? How will they be represented among God's people? It's because all of their young children who passed away or miscarried and all of those with severe intellectual or cognitive challenges will be numbered among God's people. And how this exactly works, I admit, is a mystery. But one final thing, so here we go, final thing. One final thing we know is that God is just and He's fair and He's merciful and He's kind and He's exceedingly good exceedingly good. Psalm 119.68 puts it like this. Thou art, this is KJV for you guys who love that. Thou art good and doest good. Thou art good 
and doest good. And he's a father. And he decides all this. It's in his hands. Let me sing, good, good father. It's in his hands. And that's really, really good news because he is so good and he is so kind. He's so patient and he's so kind and he's so merciful and he's so gracious to us. And so the same father, capital F, who sought me, saved me and sealed me. Is this, I mean, he's the one who saved me. I wasn't looking for God. God looked for him. We don't love him first. He loves us first. Salvation always starts with God no matter what. And so the one, same one, same father who sought me and saved me and sealed me is the same father I'm trusting to do what is right and best with the babies that we lose. And those who have an intellectual or mental challenge and cannot comprehend the gospel. And so while at times the doctrines of predestination and election can be a bit intimidating for some people. In this matter, we should find them unbelievably comforting and helpful. God is good. And God's the one who saves. And so because of all of this, this possible excuse from Romans 1, some babies that are, are regenerate from birth, David and Jeremiah and, and, and John the Baptist, children entered the promised land, David's hope to see his son again, judgment being linked to deeds, not just nature, Worshippers from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, the goodness of God. Because of all of this, I believe that all babies and those who through mental and intellectual challenges are unable to comprehend the gospel. I believe that all of these dear souls will be saved by grace, not because they're innocent, not because they merit God's forgiveness, but solely because God has sovereignly chosen them for eternal life, regenerated their souls, and applied the saving benefits of the blood of Christ to them apart from conscious faith. Which means that one day, in Christ's presence and by His grace, all who have lost a child We'll hug that child while Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes and we weep no more. This is good news. And so abound in hope. God is good and doest good. And he says, let the little children come to me. He's a good, good father. And oh, how he loves us. Let's pray. And Father, we confess there's so much we cannot understand. You're so mysterious. You're so glorious. Our little teeny tiny fallen brains cannot even come close to starting to comprehend your greatness and your glory and how you work all things for your glory and for our ultimate good. And Father, we don't want to speak where Scripture doesn't speak clearly, but we do want to gather from Scripture what we can see. And we see these things. And so we're led to believe that this is how you work. Because of everything that we know from the Scriptures and know of your nature. 
from the Scriptures. You are good and doest good and say, let the little children come to me. And so, Father, for those in here who have lost a child, had a miscarriage and lost a child, gave birth to a child that had already passed away or soon did, those who aborted a child in their background, for those who have a child who they don't know if they have or will have someday the mental capacity to understand the gospel and exercise personal faith. Fill them with hope. Holy Spirit, swell in their hearts. And let them deep drinkly deep drink deeply from the fountain of your living water that speaks over and over of your goodness and your grace. It's unmerited. For, for those of us who can exercise personal faith, it's still unmerited, still undeserved, and even the faith to believe is given to us. And so we trust you, God. We love you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you love our kids more than we do. Thank you that you care for them. Thank you that you hold all people, all your precious little ones in the palm of your hand. And that those of us who believe will see our little ones who we've lost again. Fill us with hope, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.